Heavenly Father God, we are so thankful that you are here in this place. We are so thankful, Father, that you are doing the work because we can't. We are thankful, Father, for your Holy Spirit and the power, your power to speak, your power to open up our minds and to teach us. Father, we pray that you will be with us in a special way. Do everything you want to do in our lives and through us to bless others, we pray. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ, in his epic discourse to Laodicea, offered you to you and me three precious treasures. Remember what they were? That gold refined by fire, that clean linen, that righteousness, and the eye salve. These three treasures that Jesus offered us, the church of Laodicea, you and me, are not given away free. Jesus says, buy from me. But what does that mean? What does it mean to buy from Jesus? The gold represents faith. The white raiment represents righteousness. What does it mean to buy from Jesus faith and righteousness? We're talking about righteousness by faith, so this is an important, uh, these are important questions. How can we understand this message of Jesus to Laodicea in terms of buying these wonderful things? You know, there are a lot of... Um, things written today about righteousness by faith. It's one of the foundational aspects of our, our denomination and is our, our life. And yet, there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding about what righteousness by faith really is and how it works. What is this righteousness? Whose righteousness is it? How does it work in practical terms in our life? And, and this faith, why is faith required? And what is, it, what is it for? And how do we get it? I mean, lots of questions like this. I just recently read a book about righteousness by faith. And in the book, the author purported to biblically and, try and clearly uh, teach what righteousness by faith really is. But by the time the book was over, he was so far off, he wouldn't even recognize righteousness by faith. So this is a very important topic. And once, one that is sometimes misused and misunderstood and misrepresented, but it's an important one. So let's look together and see if we can get a clear, accurate, biblical, concise definition of righteousness by faith and how it works in the Christian life. You know, in order to understand righteousness by faith, you only need to understand two things, right? Righteousness and faith. <laughs> well, that doesn't really help us a whole lot because uh, these are very complex subjects and books have been written on each one. And not everybody who, who studies righteousness by faith actually understands uh, or actually agree with each other. So how do we understand this complex topic? Well, fortunately, we do not always need to understand the deep complexities of a topic in order to, to enjoy the beauty of the general concept, right? Just because I don't understand all the ins and outs of how a hot air balloon works does not mean that I can't understand, well, you know, hot air rises and I can get in this balloon, I can enjoy the scenery, right? So it's the same way with the Christian life. We want to get a bird's eye view of this thing called righteousness by faith so that we can uh, get the general concept and enjoy it to the fullest. So this bird's eye view is going to start out with a simple definition. The Bible says that a righteous person is one who does what is right. 1 John 3, 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So the one who does what is right is righteous. The only problem is that term righteous does not apply to anyone on this earth, right? Only applied to Jesus. He was the only one that was truly righteous. So, when we talk about righteousness, we can only talk about Christ's righteousness. 
There are two types of righteousness, and both of them are Christ's righteousness. I want to make sure that's very clear from the very beginning here. There are two types of righteousness, but both types are Christ's righteousness. There's Christ's righteousness for us, and there's Christ's righteousness through us. They're both Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness for us is his robe of righteousness. It's his way of wiping away our guilt and sin. It is the way of of giving us the benefits and advantages of heaven, even though we can't possibly deserve them. That's Christ's righteousness for us. The Bible says God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So this is Christ's righteousness for us. It's what he has done for us. We cannot do it. We can't even begin to do it. We can't even start to begin to do it. Only Christ can do it, and he does it for us. Christ's righteousness for us is his plan B. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden it became impossible for us to be saved. But God says, okay, I've got a plan. I've got a way that I can do it. I can actually give you Christ's robe of righteousness, forgive you for your sins, justify you, and make you holy. Christ's righteousness through us, on the other hand, is um, God working in us to change us. It's God working in us to make us more like him. It's God working in us to change the way we think, to change the way we desire, to change the way we act, to act and desire and think and move more righteously. The Bible says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is what? Born of him. It's only through Christ and his righteousness through us that we can practice righteousness. Christ's righteousness is like a medicated bandage. Not only does it cover, protect, and hide, that's Christ's righteousness for us, but it also um, heals and changes from the inside. It makes us different people. That's Christ's righteousness through us. Both kinds of righteousness, both of Christ's righteousness for us and through us is critical to our salvation and to our well-being as followers of Jesus. And you may have heard other terms for these two aspects of Christ's righteousness. Sometimes you'll hear it called imputed righteousness, that's his righteousness for us, or justification. And imparted righteousness through us and sanctification are another, other terms for these two types of fundamental righteousness that only comes from Christ. So let me ask you a question. If Christ's righteousness for us justifies us, covers us with Christ's righteousness, forgives us of our sin, wipes away our guilt, saves us, then why do we need Christ's righteousness through us? What's the importance? What's the purpose of Christ's righteousness through us? Well, I would like to propose that there are at least four good reasons why Christ's righteousness for us is critical to the Christian life. First, the citizens of heaven will be righteous. We know that. So it's never too early to get started in the process, right? In Psalms we read, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Those who are with Christ in heaven will be righteous. And he's preparing us for that day. And that's part of the process. The second reason why it's so important for Christ to to work his righteousness through us is because right doing is faith enhancing. In other words, every time that God is able to work powerfully in us, through us, to produce works of righteousness, that's actually increasing our faith. And we are talking about righteousness by faith, right? So the more faith we have, 
the better. This is, a, this is an important thing. <clears throat> James says, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, what? As a result of the works, faith was perfected. So it's an important part in his faith-enhancing process. Number three, God wants to use his goodness through us to bless others. In other words, when we are saved, when we are baptized and we surrender our lives to Jesus, our life doesn't stop there. Our Christian life is not about us. It's not about uh, just saving us. That's just the beginning. When Christ saves us, he sends us out to save as many other people as possible. He wants to use that righteousness through us, Christ's righteousness through us, to reach as many people as powerfully as possible. And that is another reason why Christ's righteousness through us is so important. Second Peter, for these, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't want us to be useless or unfruitful. And that's why he works his righteousness through us to these, uh, this righteousness, this goodness. The fourth reason why his righteousness is through us is so important is that right doing is love enhancing. The Bible says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience, good works that God produces through us is love enhancing. And love is one of the most important foundation principles of the Christian life. We can never love God too much. We can never love others too much. And God is continually working to grow our love. And this is one of the ways he does that, through these um, um, love-enhancing obedience. And my friends, if it's true that Christ's righteousness through us is love-enhancing, then the opposite is also true. Disobedience is love-inhibiting. Isaiah says in 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's arm is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So we want Christ's righteousness through us, enhancing our love for him. Right doing is not just for legalists. I want to make sure that that's stressed. Right doing is one of God's great gifts to mankind. It's going his way. It's a love-motivated walking with Jesus. It's not just the legalists who get to, to enjoy this right doing. So don't be afraid of it. Be afraid of legalism. Be afraid of doing it for the wrong reasons. Do afraid of, of, be afraid of, of obeying God because you want to earn, deserve, or merit something. But don't be afraid of letting Christ's righteousness work powerfully through you to enhance your love, to enhance your faith, to work through you, to bless others. Legalism is a, uh, something we have to fight vigorously. But while we're fighting it, let's not miss out on the beauty and power of obeying God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. Christ's righteousness through us will affect us in many ways. It will change our words, our thoughts, our desires, our diet, our entertainment, our finances. Every area in our life, Christ's righteousness through us is going to change us. Sanctification is about change. Sometimes we want to be sanctified, but we don't want to change, and yet that's exactly what sanctification is. It's God making us more and more like Jesus. So embrace these changes. Rejoice in these changes. Recognize that these changes are good. It's not legalism to love Jesus, to want to please him, and to want to enjoy his goodness. It's not legalism to be like Jesus. So that's righteousness, a little bit, overview of righteousness. Let's now look at faith. Righteousness by faith. There's something about faith that's important. 
Well, of course, we know the definition of faith. The Bible clearly tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But let me just say something about this real quick. Not every conviction of the unseen is saving faith. Right? We want to distinguish between faith, which is the conviction of the unseen, and saving faith. For example, I believe that I have a heart beating in my chest. And I've never seen it. Thank goodness. Right? I've heard it. I've uh, felt it, maybe, in my pulse. But I've never seen my heart. I have faith that I have a heart. Does that faith save me? Well, it may help me to live longer if I believe I have a heart and I need to take good care of it. But no, that's not saving faith. In fact, not even faith in Jesus is always saving faith. Remember the story of Simon, the leper, the Pharisee, who got leprosy, the incurable disease? It was impossible to cure leprosy. And yet, Simon the Pharisee had faith that Jesus could heal his leprosy. And Jesus did. But was that saving faith? Because just a short while later, Simon invited Jesus to his home and they had this wonderful meal together. But during the meal, there was this impure woman who came and put uh, perfume on Christ's feet. And what did Simon say? The Bible records, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. In other words, Simon had faith in Jesus, had faith in Christ's healing power, but he wasn't even sure that Jesus was a prophet, no less the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So even a belief in Jesus' character, his power, even a belief in his love or his mission, that's not enough. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is something more than just that assent to what Christ has done. So what then is saving faith? Perhaps the easiest way to understand saving faith is to take a, just a quick detour here into uh, an understanding of what these two words mean, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Now this may seem to be a diversion, but this is actually very much uh, on the road to understanding righteousness by faith. In fact, these two words are foundational to righteousness by faith, as we'll see. This words, this phrase, in Christ, occurs 87 times in the, in the Bible, and most of the times it occurs, it is describing the benefits, the blessings, the wonders of being in Christ. Grace, liberty, triumph, unity, hope, wisdom, but one of the greatest blessings that the Bible talks about of being in Christ is righteousness. Righteousness is this blessing that comes from being in Christ. This is what the Bible says. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Christ's righteousness for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Does it stop there? No, it says, for those who are where? In Christ, Romans 8.1. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Being in Christ is foundational to righteousness by faith. And that's just Christ's righteousness for us. Let's look at Christ's righteousness through us. Therefore, if anyone is where? In Christ. He is a what? A new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We are Christ's workmanship, Paul tells us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That is Christ's righteousness through us. And both Christ's righteousness for us and Christ's righteousness through us comes by being in Christ. So how do we get in Christ? That's the next good question, right? If, if being in Christ is so important to righteousness by faith, then how do we get in Christ? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that. 
Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul says in Romans 6.23, or, or 6.3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? In other words, Paul clearly tells us that to be in Christ means to be baptized in Christ. And not just the water baptism. We're talking about the, 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 the water baptism is a symbol of those three things, those three important things that have happened. That death to self, that burial in Christ, and that resurrection to newness of life in the Holy Spirit. The only way to get in Christ is to be baptized into Christ, into his death. Right? That's the baptism. The die to self the buried in Jesus, cleansed by his blood, the resurrection to newness of life in Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. There's that word faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We have a word for this death, this, this uh, crucifixion of self. It's called surrender. Surrender is the way we express this whole concept of giving ourselves wholly to God. Every second of our time, every cent of our money, every cell of our body, every synapse of our brain is giving ourselves to God, surrendering ourselves to Him. Surrender is a cliff that we must jump off and die in the arms of Jesus. It is a leap of faith. It is hard to jump off that cliff and know that we're going to splat on the ground, even if it is in the arms of Jesus. Dying in the arms of Jesus is one of the hardest things for us to do to make that leap of faith. It is saving faith, saving faith in Jesus that helps us make that leap. And it is saving faith, saving faith in Jesus that keeps us securely in his arms, staying surrendered to him, not walking away. The Christian journey is a constant battle to keep Jesus king of our lives, to stay dead. So, what is saving faith? Saving faith is a life-changing trust in Jesus that drives us into the arms of Jesus through surrender and keeps us there regardless of the circumstances. Saving faith is faith that, that leads us to Jesus. It's, it's faith that, that keeps us in Jesus. It's faith that drives us into that surrender relationship with him, that lets us take that leap of faith. That is what it means to have saving faith. In the Bible, there are many illustrations of what it means to be in Christ. You've, you recognize these, of course, right? The vine and the branches, John 15, a small gate, a narrow way, Matthew 7. And even Paul uses the symbolism of a marriage to talk about this being in Christ. But notice something interesting about these illustrations of being in Christ. In every single one of them, a separation must take place first before you can have that in Christ relationship, right? The vine has to be severed from the false vine and grafted to the true. The small gate, the traveler has to leave the wide road to enter the small gate. And the marriage, right, the bride separates from her parents, forsakes all others, and consecrates herself to the bridegroom. Holy. In each one of these cases, this, this attachment, this in Christ relationship, requires a detachment first. We are told that pride, selfishness, vanity, worldliness, sin in all its forms must be overcome if we would enter into a union with Christ. 
The reason, notice, this is the reason, the reason why many find the Christian life so deplorably hard, why they are so fickle, so variable, is that they try to attach themselves to Christ without first detaching themselves from their cherished idols. Isn't that incredible? Do we do that? Most of my life, that was the story of my life. I wanted to be with Christ. I wanted to be in Christ. I wanted to be surrendered to Christ. I wanted to be saved. I wanted to enjoy all the benefits. But I was not wanting to be detached from all my cherished idols. I kept some. And it was those that kept me spiritually impoverished. The reason why so many find it, the Christian life so deplorably hard, why they are so fickle, so variable, is that they try to attach themselves to Christ without first detaching themselves from their cherished idols. To be in Christ means to be detached from self and its cherished idols. No wonder then that righteousness by faith, that righteousness is by faith, because faith is the way that we surrender. Faith enables and sustains our surrender, our detachment from our cherished idols. Perhaps one of the most powerful illustrations in all of Scripture about this thing being in Christ comes to us uh, in Christ's words to to the church of Laodicea. When we see him standing at the door of our hearts, knocking, right? Here's the Almighty God, the God of the universe, knocking gently at our door. And what does he say? He says, Behold, I'm standing. I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. And Jesus wants to come in with us. He doesn't want to just uh, come in. He wants to come in and take over. He wants us to open ourselves to him fully so that he can be king in our lives. He wants to transform us. He wants to be almighty God in us. And when Jesus urges us to buy faith from him, remember we talked about this at the very beginning, What does it mean to buy this faith tried by fire? What does it mean to buy this white raiment? What does it mean to buy this ISAB? When Christ is inviting us to buy them, he tells us in the next two verses exactly what it means. He tells us what the currency is of heaven and the cost for these three precious treasures that he wants us to buy from him. The currency of heaven is our choices and the cost for the treasures is all of them. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door to me, right? That's, the, that's that foundation surrender choice that each one must make. Jesus told the parable of the pearl of great price. When that merchant found that valuable pearl, which represents Christ himself, what did he go and do? He went and sold all that he had so that he could buy the pearl of great price. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do. He's asking us to open ourselves to him. He's standing at the door. He's knocking. He's ready and willing to come in to be king of our life. But we have to make that choice. The currency of heaven is our choices. God has given us the power of choice, and we can give them back to him. And the cost is all. God is asking for all of us, not just part of us. That radical surrender to Jesus can only happen by faith. It is only faith that allows us to take that leap of faith. It is only faith that that makes it possible to make that choice, to give up on our life as we know it, to give up on our own dreams and desires and aspirations, and to give it all to Jesus, to give him all of our choices. That can only happen by faith. Saving faith, my friends, is not just believing in Jesus. It's not just an assent to his power or his love or his salvation even. Saving faith is a love relationship with Jesus. It's not just a a thought process. It's actually a full-fledged, dying in the arms of Jesus, wholly surrendered love relationship with him. 
Salvation is not to be baptized, not to have our names upon the church books, not to preach the truth. It is a living union with Jesus Christ. To be renewed in heart, doing the works of Christ, how? In faith and labor of love, in patience, meekness, and hope. So, taking all that we've looked at so far, let's see if we can come up with a least relatively concise definition of righteousness by faith. This is about as concise as I could possibly get it and still be inclusive. Righteousness by faith is Christ's righteousness for us and Christ's righteousness through us resulting from Christ's relationship with us. A faith-initiated, faith-sustained, wholly surrendered love relationship with Jesus. That's our key phrase this morning. Let's read it out loud together. Christ's righteousness for us and Christ's righteousness through us resulting from Christ's relationship with us. A faith-initiated, faith-sustained, wholly surrendered love relationship with Jesus. That's what righteousness by faith is all about. It's a love relationship with Jesus that lets God be righteous for us and through us. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. And where does it all start? When we submit ourselves to Christ. All these things happen only as we submit wholly to Christ. And that is why faith is so important. So that's the theory of righteousness by faith. Let me share with you just for a few minutes what that means in practical terms. And perhaps the best way I can do that is to share a little bit about my own personal story. What does righteousness mean to me practically, personally? For most of my sincere Christian life, I felt like a better than average Christian. I had no conception really of how wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked I was. But you know, in spite of my, my self-deception about my true spiritual condition, I never really considered myself, I don't really think I was ever a legalist. Because I knew it was laughable to even try to think, to begin to start to, to uh, deserve anything from God by my own goodness. But as I grew closer to Jesus, I began to realize how wretched I was more and more. My sense of my own unworthiness grew as I got closer to Jesus. No longer now was I comparing myself with others. I was comparing myself with the eternal standard by which I looked like a mud rat in comparison. You know, there's this wonderful word called grace. We all know what grace means, right? Grace means unmerited favor. It simply means undeserved blessings. Have you ever noticed that there is no word for deserved blessings from God? It doesn't exist. There's no such word. Do you know why there's no such word for deserved blessings from God? Because it doesn't happen. It never happens. It's all grace. It's all undeserved. It's all blessings that we could not possibly earn, deserve, or merit. Nobody deserves the least of God's goodness. It's all grace. Forgiveness is grace. Goodness is grace. Faith is grace. Joy is grace. Giving is grace. Victory over sin is grace. It's all grace. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, this verse became more meaningful to me. As my own sense of my unworthiness grew, I clung to this verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though my sense of my wretchedness increased, my joy in his salvation also increased. Because I realized that it would only be through grace that I could be uncondemned in my true condition. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in in Christ Jesus. I know that I cannot do it. I know that only God can do it. I know that the one who loves me is willing and able and eager to do it for me and through me. And that gave me peace that passes understanding. But it wasn't just that peace that I was experiencing in my life. I also began to experience changes, wonderful changes, victories that I had never experienced before. The Bible says, if anyone's in Christ, a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I began to experience uh, many wonderful things in my life. One of them was a love for prayer. Almost immediately after my surrender, admittedly very late in life, I surrendered to Jesus for the first time. My love for prayer was transformed overnight. I began to truly relish my time with him. This to me was one of the greatest miracles I've ever experienced. God changing me so that I could enjoy prayer because prayer had always been hard for me. I found it hard to pray for five or ten minutes at a time and it was didn't really seem to be very effective and I didn't really enjoy it. I knew I should do it and I tried to do it, but it wasn't a joy. It wasn't something I truly relished. But when I surrendered my life to Jesus, immediately God gave me that transformed love for Him that, that made prayer a priority. I could not imagine not having that time. It, was, it truly became my favorite time of the day. That to me, if you knew me, is one of the greatest miracles, practical miracles of how Jesus made me a new creature. Let me give you another specific example of something practical and concrete that God did in my life. Most of my life, I suffered from a disease called boredom. Boredom was my nemesis. And if you laugh, um, you've not been as bored as I was. <laughs> boredom can be extremely painful. And most of my life, I fought boredom. I medicated myself with movies and video games and internet and Facebook and sports and news. I did whatever I could to try to alleviate the symptoms, the pain of boredom in my life. And although they gave me some temporarily, temporary relief, they didn't actually cure the problem. In fact, they actually made the problem worse. Because the more I indulged in these things, the more bored I became, and the more of these I needed, and then we had that whole diminishing returns thing going on. I knew that God had natural remedies ready and waiting for me. I really knew this, but I was afraid. I was afraid to let God have my life. I was afraid to give God all my movies and all my video games and all these things which I, I, I clung to and depended on. I could not imagine life without them. I was afraid. I didn't have the faith to make that leap of faith of total surrender of all my time and all my choices to God. Because of that lack of faith, because of that lack of faith, I failed to surrender my life wholly to Him and and. I lived a life of spiritual poverty, not enjoying God, not relishing Him, not getting the victory that He promises over and over again. Most of my life, I sang the Laodicean surrender song. You know the Laodicean surrender song? All to Jesus, most to Jesus I surrender, most to Him I freely give. I will mostly love and trust him in his presence, mostly live. That's the song that I, that I sang with my life. Yes, with my words, it was all to Jesus. But in my life, it was most to Jesus. 
I didn't give him all. I wasn't willing to give him all. I didn't have the faith to give him all. I couldn't imagine giving him all. And for 30 years after my baptism, I lived in spiritual poverty because I was unable to make that leap of faith. And God was not able to get me to die, buried, and resurrection in him. Resurrection power is only available to those who die, and I wasn't willing to die. Because of this surrender failure in my life, my life was one of spiritual poverty. I wanted to enjoy time with God. I wanted to enjoy prayer. I wanted to enjoy the Bible. I wanted to have victory over sin. I wanted to be all these wonderful things, but it wasn't happening. God was not king of my life. He was not almighty God in me because I was resisting him. But the more I learned about surrender... And the more I looked at this cliff that God was asking me to jump off of, this cliff of of, um, faith and surrender, the more I began to realize that this is something I had to do if I was ever going to experience the true Christian life. The conviction grew in me that I needed God to do it. And I needed to let him. That I would need him to give me that faith, to make that leap of faith. I would need him to give me that faith to keep me in that surrender relationship, and to give him all my choices all the time. And you know what? Finally, God succeeded. It took him 30 years in my case. Hopefully, it doesn't take that, that much time in everybody's case. But it took him 30 years after my baptism to get me to the place where I was truly willing and able to jump off that cliff, to give him all my choices. And when I did, my life was transformed. Miraculously, supernaturally, God became Almighty God in and through me. He gave me victory over my besetting sins. He gave me a true enjoyment for prayer. He transformed my entire Christian life. Christ's righteousness through me became a practical reality in my life. All our good works, we are told, are dependent on a power outside of ourselves. Therefore, there needs to be a continual reaching out of the heart after God, a continual, earnest, heartbreaking confession of sin and humbling of the soul before Him. Only by constant renunciation of self and dependence on Christ can we walk safely. My friends, the key is in that constant renunciation of self. Only by constant renunciation of self and dependence on Christ can we walk safely. For the first time in my life, I allowed Christ to cover me with his righteousness. All of me. To be his righteousness for me and to work powerfully his righteousness through me. And I experienced wonderful changes in every aspect of my life. This became truly the experience of my life. Christ's righteousness for me and Christ's righteousness through me, resulting from Christ's relationship with me, a faith-initiated, faith-sustained, wholly surrendered love relationship with Jesus. Okay, so I'm a teacher. Therefore, I get to do things that are a little bit uh, uh, out of the ordinary. In order for you to pass this class today, you have to pass a quiz, all right? So here's our quiz. Question number one. What is the righteousness that comes by faith? A, forgiveness of sin through Christ's sacrifice. B, doing good so we can deserve heaven. C, doing good so God will love us more. D, growing more and more like Jesus in thoughts, desires, and actions. Or E, both B and C, or F, both A and D. What is this righteousness that we're talking about here? What do you think? Both A and D? You agree? 
Yes, Christ's righteousness for us. Forgiveness of sins through Christ's sacrifice. Christ's righteousness through us, growing more and more like Jesus in thoughts, desires, and actions. It's both of those important aspects. Okay, good. Question number two. Which of the following is not a reason that it is so important to let Christ work in us to think and to act more, more, and more, righteously, more and more righteously? In other words, we know that it's important for Christ to work through us. Which of these is not one of the reasons why it's important for Christ to work through us? A, so we can eventually be righteous enough to deserve God's blessings. B, so we can enjoy a closer relationship with Jesus. C, so, we can, so he can powerfully use us to bless others. Or D, so that our faith can grow. What do you think? Which one is not one of the important reasons? It's A, that's right. Exactly. So that we can eventually be righteous enough to deserve God's blessings is not going to happen. We're not going to be eventually righteous enough to deserve anything. It's Christ's righteousness for us and Christ's righteousness through us that comes from Christ's righteousness with us, relationship with us. Number three, Christ's righteousness only comes to those who are in Christ. What does that mean? A, that we believe that Jesus died for our sins. B, that we have been baptized. C, that we are in a holy, surrendered love relationship with Jesus. Or D, that we understand the truths of Scripture and want to follow them. Now, all these things are good, but what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it truly mean? C, that's right, that we are in a holy, surrendered love relationship with Jesus. What primary part does saving faith play in righteousness by faith? A, it helps us to surrender to Jesus and keeps us surrendered. B, it is an assent to the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. C, it causes us to deserve salvation. Or D, it helps us to believe that God exists. What is the primary part for saving faith? A, it helps us surrender to Jesus and keeps us surrendered. That's why saving faith is so important. It keeps us in the arms of Jesus and helps us get there, take that leap of faith. All right, last question. What is our part in righteousness by faith? A very important question, one that's often asked. A, we have to surrender ourselves to Jesus in in our own faith and power. B, we have to try hard to have enough faith to be saved. C, we don't have any part to play in righteousness by faith. Or D, we use our power of choice by faith to let God surrender us to him. What is our part in the faith relationship? D, we use our power of choice, the power of choice that God has given us, by faith, by his power, by his grace, to let God surrender us to him. When we do that, then Christ is our righteousness for us. Christ is our righteousness through us because of that relationship with us. That faith-initiated, faith-sustained, holy-surrendered love relationship with Jesus. Christ's righteousness for us and Christ's righteousness through us resulting from Christ's relationship with us. A faith-initiated, faith-sustained, holy-surrendered love relationship with Jesus. My friends, is that our experience? Have we taken that leap of faith Are we experiencing Christ's righteousness for us and Christ's righteousness through us in the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us? That's what righteousness by faith is all about. Righteousness by faith is about victory. It's about transformation. It's about supernatural God working supernaturally in our lives. And it can only come through that faith-initiated, faith-sustained, holy-surrendered love relationship with Jesus. Are we willing to make that leap of faith? Are we experiencing that victory in Jesus? My friends, God is able, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God is able, he's willing, he's eager to be Christ's righteousness for you and Christ's righteousness through you, if you let him. 
Will you let him? By God's grace, let's let God be almighty God in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for the privilege of surrender. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that we can let you be righteous. We don't deserve it. We can't deserve it. We can't be righteous on our own, but we can let you be Christ's righteousness for us and through us. Oh, Heavenly Father, please work powerfully on each one of us to make us truly willing and able to let you be Almighty God in us. We pray for these things. We praise you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.